0: Beyond Barbarossa, Episode 14, Crimea and Sevastopol. Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry. I'm podcasting to you today from the unceded territory of the Algonquin and Anishinaabe people, also known as Ottawa. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Beyond Barbarossa. First, I have to apologize for the delay in posting this episode. There were some technical difficulties, but mostly it was just life that got in the way. So from this point, though, uh, instead of every second Wednesday, I'll be moving to posting new episodes late on Sundays or early on Mondays. It's just easier to manage that way. Last episode was a special one. Uh, We had a special guest, the Ukrainian-Canadian historian and podcaster Larissa Sarichnyak, who came to discuss Ukrainian culture and history and the significance of the Second World War in Ukrainian society today. What kind of place it holds in the Ukrainian cultural consciousness, both in Ukraine and in the Ukrainian diaspora around the world. We're going to have more special guests on this podcast in the future. I'm not going to tell you who they will be uh, just yet, but watch your feed or your social media accounts uh, beyond Barbarossa page on Facebook and elsewhere for more on what's coming up. One other thing I'm recording this episode with uh, some new technology, a little bit of a change there. Uh, before I was using GarageBand on a Macintosh. Uh, This episode is recorded using the Audacity software on a Linux computer. Yes, uh, gone totally nerdy here. Uh, And I want to thank my uh, good friend, Thane Brown, for setting this computer up for me and uh, and helping me install this software and showing me the ropes. Let me know if... um, If the, what the sound quality is like, if there's any differences that you notice, um, or there's any problems, I'm interested to hear that, uh, you know, these technical aspects for someone like me, who's recording and producing the podcast himself as well as writing it and, and performing it. Um, yeah, these, these, all these things are important. So do let me know. Now this episode we're returning to the chronological narrative, the story of the Eastern Front of the Second World War. So where were we before the special episode um, a few weeks ago? Well, we had kind of reached the end of October, early November. Uh, The last uh, narrative episode talked about Operation Arctic Fox, the German offensive operations in the far north along the Arctic Ocean. We also looked at the siege of Leningrad still in the north, but not quite as far as the Arctic ocean and episodes eight and nine discussed operation typhoon, the so-called final assault on Moscow, which got really close by the end or by November, 1941, but not quite all the way in the South. The Germans were sweeping across Ukraine in the fall of 1941. Uh, Kiev fell to the Germans in mid-September. And the Germans kept going and they advanced to Rostov-on-Don, which is a, uh, an operation and a battle we're going to look at in detail in the future. This was a critical juncture, as we'll see. But for this episode, I'm going to have to back up again just a little to... Uh, take a look at an operation that, uh, that spanned the time frame of other operations. And I'm talking about the battle for Crimea. So back in July 1941, German Fuhrer Adolf Hitler issued two critical orders kind of midway through the development of Operation Barbarossa. These were Fuhrer Directives 33 and 34. These ordered the diversion of the panzer groups that had been so effective, instrumental in making unprecedented progress into enemy territory through Belarus, Ukraine, into Russia. So they had done spectacularly well. So what did Hitler do? No, he ordered them to divert Half of them went north for the assault on Leningrad, and the other half south to take Kiev and the rest of Ukraine. These orders, these two directives, also changed the strategy for Crimea. It became a priority, whereas before, up until the end of July, Crimea... Conquering Crimea was supposed to have been a, a mop up operation. Once everything else was conquered, uh, they've reached the the Germans had reached the Volga River, the Communist uh, Party and government had collapsed, then the Germans would take over Crimea as sort of a cleanup. Uh, but it that changed. Now it's a priority. So why? What's so important about Crimea? Well, uh, many of you already know where it is, but there is a map on the website, on the web page, and on the, um, in the show notes. So take a look at that map. And you'll see Crimea is this peninsula, uh, kind of a diamond shape or an arrowhead shape, extending south into the Black Sea. Command of that gives one pretty effective command of the northern half of the Black Sea. Hitler called it, in 1941, an unsinkable aircraft carrier. That's because on July 9th, the Red Air Force launched an air raid from Crimea on the Ployste oil fields in Romania across the Black Sea. 9,000 tons of oil burned for five days. That was a, a blow to the, uh, the German war effort. They need oil. But the significance of Crimea is greater than just one air raid. It always has been important. So let's take a look back. Crimea has played a role in history for millennia. It was coveted and and governed by the Scythians and the Sarmatians in ancient times. The Greeks colonized the peninsula. The Roman Empire had cities there. The Golden Horde, that is the Mongols, and even the Ottomans. It was important to them all. Finally, the Russian Empire wrested it from the Ottomans in the 1700s. Why? Well, as I said, it gives you command of the Black Sea. Crimea, when you look at it, that's a shape it's fascinated me since I was a child. The first time I looked at maps in grade school. In fact, I remember a teacher saying, okay, you can find Europe on a map of the world. Just look for the boot. The teacher meant Italy. I, for whatever reason, I didn't see Italy as a boot. I, but I looked at the black sea and thought it looked like a shoe. It's an interesting shape, Crimea, that is. Uh, it reaches toward the Taman Peninsula, enclosing the Sea of Azov on one side. And on the other side, there's another peninsula that stretches far to the west. The thing about Crimea is that it's attached to the Ukrainian mainland by a narrow, and here's the word I hate to say once again, isthmus. There's a lot of isthmuses in this war. Isthmus? Who ever thought that was a good idea? Put an S and then a TH and then an M. It is me. Anyway, uh, as you can imagine, that narrow approach makes a land attack difficult because it uh, forces the attackers to uh, concentrate into a narrow approach. So defenders don't have to defend as much territory. A smaller group of defenders can hold off a large group of attackers because the attackers have to back up, behind each other. Uh, this uh, kind of phenomenon has played out. That was what was important at Thermopylae uh, when, uh, the, when the Spartans defended southern Greece against the invading Persians. So there are actually in Crimea three kind of land routes into the larger part of the peninsula. The widest is at the town of Perekop. This is the, uh, actually where the land is narrowest, coming down from Ukraine into Crimea. It's a solid land bridge. Then there's, to the east, a uh, crossing at the town of Chonga, or Chonha, depending on whether you speak Russian or Ukrainian. And finally, there's a further um, crossing at the Arabat Spit, this is another geographical feature. This is what I, I think found most interesting. If you take a look at even a fairly small map of the Black Sea and the Crimean Peninsula, you'll see this long, skinny strip of land curving along the edge of the isthmus from the southern part of Crimea, from the uh, that um, Kerch Peninsula reaching out to the east. and goes all the way up, almost but not quite touching The mainland again. This is called the Arbat Spit. And in between or the Spit and the rest of the Crimean Peninsula is something called the Sivash, the putrid sea in Russian. We'll get to that again. Now, once you get past this um, isthmus, which is fairly low, boggy territory, more water than land. The rest of the peninsula is pretty rough terrain. There are steep hills, steep ravines, and and, and deep valleys. So it's not that easy for an army to move across. And this is something that defenders counted on. The first, the Isthmus, the narrow approach being easier to defend, and then the territory itself being harder to move across. Now, as I said in history, the, uh, the Ottomans controlled the Crimean Peninsula until the uh, 1700s when uh, the Russians invaded and, and took over the peninsula, arrested control from the Ottomans. In 1783, Russian Vice Admiral uh, Fedor Klukachev surveyed Crimea and found uh, the southern town of Akhtiar on the southwest coast. And recognized that its port could, with some work and development, be as great a harbor as Kornstadt, which is the harbor of St. Petersburg in the north on the Baltic Sea. So they went to work. And in 1784, they developed a new city, which they named Sevastopol or Sevastopol, depending on, but apparently both pronunciations are acceptable. Um, Sevastopol or Sevastopol means magnificent city. So again, take a closer look at the map on the website. You'll see it's on one of the bays that goes north-south near the entrance to a larger, long, skinny bay called, variously, Severnaya Bay or Sevastopol Bay. And you can also see, if you look at the the terrain uh, component of the maps, uh, it's difficult, hilly, uh, broken-up terrain. And this is important to understanding the battle for Crimea and Sevastopol. So for all these reasons, because it's Great Harbour and because the city is very um, easy to defend, or at least in theory, it became the home of the Imperial Russian Black Sea Fleet. And then later, after 1917, the Soviet Red Navy Black Sea Fleet. Now back up again just a little bit. In 1854, there was what we call the Crimean War. France, Britain, and the Kingdom of Piedmont-Sardinia, now called Italy, allied with the Ottoman Empire against the expanding Russian Empire. This was a notoriously bloody war, where disease killed far more soldiers than bullets did. And it was immortalized in the memory of Florence Nightingale, who kind of invented the uh, profession of nursing, and by the poet Alfred Lord Tennyson in The Charge of the Light Brigade, which has the repeated lines, Into the Valley of Death, Road the 600. So one thing that the Russians learned in the Crimean War in, the, in 1854 was that um, while the port of Sevastopol was well defended from the seaward side. It wasn't as well defended, if at all from the landward side, because again, who would attack from the land onto the, you know, this piece of land surrounded by water doesn't make sense in theory. So anyway, um, They began redeveloping those land-side defenses. Uh, This went on for a very long time, but never really uh, came up to snuff. Uh, In the Russian Civil War, uh, the Whites took control of Crimea until the Reds uh, trounced them in 1920. And again, the Soviets realized, yeah, we better do something about these land defenses around Sevastopol. And they got to work. But still, by 1937, a report said that, quote, Sevastopol was not prepared to defend itself from an attack by land, end quote. So this led to another reorganization and more enhancement of the land defenses, upgrades to walls, guns, more underground defenses for storing food and fuel and ammunition. Still, as late as July 13th, 1941. So this is after the Germans have attacked. Vice Admiral Oktobirsky, commander of the Black Sea Fleet, warned that the Germans could attack by amphibious landing in Crimea. He recommended strengthening the coastal defenses. However, General Pavel Batov, commander of the 51st Red Army, which was stationed in Crimea and southern Ukraine, responded that the Germans' just didn't have the naval capability to make an amphibious landing. They didn't have the shipping, didn't have the cover and naval support in the Black Sea. And he recommended concentrating on landside defenses. However, his warning was ignored. Thus, the 51st Army was spread pretty thinly across the entire peninsula. So we'll take a short break now and come back with a closer look at the opposing sides in this conflict. Now, let's take a look at the city of Sevastopol itself. By 1941, it had grown to about 114,000 population. This is like equivalent to the city of Thunder Bay, Ontario, today, where I grew up. And yes, it had pretty significant land defenses, but again, well, we'll see what happens. Uh, the, the Russians or the Soviets kept developing those land defenses when they saw the, the results of Germany's invasion of Crete in May, 1941, their use of paratroopers that, uh, concerned them. So they made some more changes. So by September, 1941, with the Germans already invading, already you know, approaching Leningrad and threatening Moscow and, uh, almost taking Kiev, uh, the, Soviets turned their attention to strengthening the defenses across the Isthmus at Perikop and Changar. They moved thirty four coastal guns from the south and that had been pointing out to defense of Astopol and other important ports around the coastline up to the isthmus, as well as other heavy and medium caliber guns and other defenses. They added more bunkers and ditches around Sevastopol, as well as long-range guns pointing eastward or into the land, Uh, barbed wire defenses, anti-tank obstacles, minefields, and bunkers. The thing was, though, None of these defensive lines, these additional defenses, were finished before they were needed. According to the book, The Defense of Sevastopol, 1941 to 1942, The Soviet Perspective, by Clayton Donnell, quote, on the landward side, only a quarter of the planned seven miles of fortifications around Sevastopol were completed, end quote. So, who were the invaders? Who were the attackers? Well, of course, the Germans. The German intention to invade Crimea came after Fuhrer Directive 33, as I mentioned, when Hitler identified the peninsula as an unsinkable aircraft carrier, therefore directed the Wehrmacht to take it, including the port of Sevastopol. This would give Germany command of the Black Sea, and an air base from which it could launch its further attacks and, and conquest of the uh, the ultimate goal, which was the oil fields of the Caucasus. So this uh, operation was assigned to the 11th Army, the German 11th Army, along with uh, some Italian and Romanian forces under the command of General Eugen von Schobert. He was actually given two tasks, to conquer the south coast of Ukraine along the Azov Sea up to Rostov-on-Don and to take Crimea. So he launched this attack on September 11th, 1941, always an auspicious day. But on that first day, uh, the commander, Jürgen, von Scho- Jürgen Ritter von Schobert, so he was uh, given en- ennobled, let's say, um, went on a uh, inspection and as his plane landed, they landed in a minefield and it killed everyone aboard. So, um, put it through, to replace him was brought in Eric von Manstein, commander of the 56th Panzer Corps, part of Army Group North. This was the guy whose panzer had moved nearly 200 miles in less than five days at the beginning of Operation Barbarossa. So, uh, von Manstein was appointed the new commander of the 11th Army. And when he got there and looked at his orders, he thought, eh, two things to do, okay. And he successfully argued that the dual task was impossible given the resources available. So he got permission to concentrate on Crimea alone, by land. Yes, he had to divert a significant part of his forces to the assault on Rostov-on-Don, and that's something we'll uh, get to in a future episode. So, he takes over on September 12th and began the assault on Crimea. This began with assaults on the isthmus at Perikop, Chongar, uh, and the crossing to the um, Arabat Peninsula. The Soviets really should not have been surprised by this given the way that the Germans had been assaulting almost exclusively by land with significant air support. They just hadn't used a whole lot of uh, naval forces in this you know, operation to date. And really, it's, that's because Germany just didn't have the naval resources to move on to the Black Sea. And how would they get them uh, through the Turkish Straits, the Dardanelles and the Bosporus? The, Turkey wasn't going to allow that. So the 11th Army, which consisted of uh, nine infantry divisions in two corps, plus one Romanian corps, uh, the 8th Air Corps from Luftflotte, or Air Fleet 4. This was uh, 600 aircraft under General Marshal Wolfram von Uctoven. Yes, the cousin of the Red Baron from the First World War. They also had three divisions of the Romanian Mountain Corps and the Italian Regia Marina. That is the Italian Marines. And they had a lot of armor, relatively speaking. Notably, the Stug three assault gun, which is basically a 75 millimeter cannon mounted on a Panzer III chassis. So, kind of like a tank without a rotating turret. But they also had other tanks as well and other uh, other armored motorized vehicles. Now, the attack on Crimea began on September 11th, as I mentioned, always an auspicious day. That actually started one day before the death of von Schobert and the appointment of Manstein. The 46th and 73rd Infantry Divisions of the German uh, 54th Corps, which was part of the 11th Army, attacked the Soviet 417th Regiment of the 156th Rifle Division at Chaplinka, that's on the road toward the Perikop Isthmus, which is the widest and, and the main land connection between Crimea and Ukraine. At this point, when they reached Perikop, the Isthmus is only 9 kilometers across. By this point, to be fair, the Soviets had put up what looked like, on paper, good fortifications, a solid defense. There was the 51st Army stationed in Crimea, consisting of seven divisions of rifle and cavalry. And at the Isthmus itself, there's the uh, old Turkish wall, so-called, also known as the Padukop Ditch, and it had a few other names. It's basically an earthen escarpment lined with four concrete bunkers equipped with 76-millimeter heavy guns, Uh, 14 more machine gun bunkers, six field gun positions, all behind earthen ramparts, plus 13 and a half kilometers of anti-tank ditches in total. So they stretched all, there were more than one of them stretching all the way across. There were three defensive lines in front of the ditch itself. These were constructed in 1941, so two kilometers ahead of it, two kilometers to the north. That is, there's an anti-tank ditch with remote controlled flamethrowers, five kilometers ahead of uh, that, the wall. So another, uh, three kilometers from the second line of defense is an eight meter ditch, which is two to three meters deep, depending on where you're at with anti-tank obstacles, barbed wire, and a 15 meter wide minefield. Five kilometers north of that, so in total 10 kilometers north of the wall, a belt of anti-tank obstacles with explosive charges, other belts of mines, bombs, and sea mines in the Sivash or Putrid Sea. So if the attackers do uh, try to splash around into the water, kaboom. The next crossing, other than Perakop, is at Chongar or Chonhar depending on whether you want to say it in Russian or Ukrainian, um, which is about 70 to 80 kilometers east as the crow flies, but double that by roads because the roads got to go around the wetlands. This though is not a solid land crossing because it requires crossing water to get from the mainland to the peninsula. So a bridge, a pontoon bridge, or some kind of um, amphibious crossing. Then you go another 25 kilometers or so farther east again. You get to the uh, town of or Genichesk, depending, again, Russian versus Ukrainian spelling, again requiring some water crossing, uh, i.e. a bridge. So here's what happens. On the 12th of September, the 73rd Infantry Division moves south toward Perikop, captures some Soviet prisoners who tell them about the defensive lines, and the Germans decide that, mm, yeah, that's a bit too strong to attack just yet. However, to the east at Henichesk, and that's the crossing that takes you onto the Autobot Spit. The 276th Rifle Division is defending across uh, that crossing as well as at Chongars, 25 kilometers to the west. The 22nd Infantry Division, as well as the Liebstandort SS motorized unit, moves in. They capture large numbers of Soviet troops. So, kind of, yeah, the, that's the model that's been happening all through this uh, series of battles. The, they also capture a supply chain, which is en route to Sevastopol. So, that's a major blow to the Soviet defenses. The Soviets there, though, they are defending. They've got uh, a coastal battery, reserve troops from the 276th Division, three gunboats, and air support. And together, they do manage to stop the Germans. But on September 24th, so this is more than a week later, finally, the German 73rd and 46th Infantry Divisions break through the defenses, even the Turkish Wall. German aircraft destroy most of the Soviet defending armor, but they had to stop because their losses were so high so high that they had to amalgamate two battalions to create a, uh, another understrength uh, leftover battalion. And the 2nd Battalion of the 170th Regiment was reduced to just one company, so they'd lost most of their men. The next day, September 25th, the Soviets retreated from those forward defenses to the Turkish wall, but it fell the next day, on the 26th. By the 27th, the Germans were at the town of Armiansk, which is just south of Perikop, so on Crimea proper. The uh, the fighting goes back and forth. The town changes hands, uh, if you can put it that way, and it's chaos. Basically, just chaos reigns in Armiansk for a day. Now, the Soviet Black Sea Fleet tried to provide some uh, bombardment support, but their ships couldn't get close enough. The water in that area is just too shallow. The Luftwaffe, as a result, took a huge toll on Soviet defenders. By the end of the day uh, of the 27th, so getting close to midnight of the 28th, the Germans were in Crimea proper. The next day, the 29th, uh, the Germans reached an area called Ishun Lake. So this is again, as the isthmus is widening out into the Uh, rest of the Crimean Peninsula. There's a lot of shallow lakes in the area. Again, the whole area is basically a wetland. So it's hard to tell the difference between solid, dry land and, and water. (laughs) And, um, so you can take a look at, take a look at it on Google maps or Google earth, and you can see just how much uh, confusion there is between water and land. There is, there are a, a few roads, narrow, um, and that's kind of where the solid ground is. The, Soviets, or sorry, the Germans penetrated past that area and by October 7th were able to do a double encirclement of uh, two Soviet divisions. This allowed the 1st Panzer Army, so that's the Panzer Group, uh, for, was once called the 1st Panzer Group, now it's uh, been elevated to the 1st Panzer Army, uh, to move behind the Soviet defenders to the rear of the Red Army. The losses were huge. Uh, The Germans lost 2,641 over these past six days. And this is due to, first of all, that that heavy Soviet defense. Uh, They had put up a lot of defenses there. They failed, but they they took a toll. Also due to the rough terrain, steep valleys and deep ravines where the Soviet defenders could hold out and it also gave them the advantage of higher ground in, in many cases. However, they just weren't enough Soviet defenders. The Germans reorganized. They sent the uh, Liebstandort SS division back to the first Panzer Army. This was to allow them to participate in the drive further east to Rostov-on-Don. So along the main, uh, the mainland of, of Ukraine, and, and into Russia again, uh, away from, it took them out of the fight for Crimea. On October 18th, the Soviets counterattacked, sending forces from Militopol on the mainland. However, this force was destroyed, and the 51st Army had to retreat again, past Dushun, so the Germans managed to reach a town called Zhankoy. This is where those three crossings uh, into Crimea, so Perakop, Chonhara, and Hrinshensk, converge and then spread out again. This put the Germans on the road to the Crimean capital of Simferopol. And that's a good place to end this episode. So please come back in two weeks and we'll take a closer look At how the Germans move into the Crimean Peninsula from north to south and east to west, and at the assault on Sevastopol itself, and how it became an iconic part of the Eastern Front of World War II. So please come back in two Sundays. As I said, we're moving to a Sunday night uh, posting. my, the idea is that uh, you'll get the notification in your email. If you follow the podcast that is, and I hope you do, Uh, you get your notification in your inbox on Monday morning in two weeks. At this point, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Barbarossa. The only podcast in English so far about the Eastern front of the second world war. As always, if you want a better understanding of the progress of the war or the, what happened in this episode, please see the maps and photos that I posted on the website beyondbarbarossa.ca which will forward you immediately to beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com but the .ca extension is easier to remember. You can also listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca and click on the podcast button in the banner so thanks also to all those of you who have supported the podcast through patreon or the Podbean app thank you very much it's greatly appreciated your financial support will go to better audio equipment um, research and support for charities that help ukrainian refugees if you like this episode please consider following Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app. And I'd really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you listen. That really helps spread the word to others interested in history. If you find I've made any errors or misstatements, please let me know. Or if you find you have something you'd like to add or say about the program, let us know. Share it. You can reach me by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Until next episode, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina.